Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you have any interest in World War II, then you've surely seen one of the most arresting photographs to come out of that conflict. In it, members of the 101st Airborne Division can be seen sporting mohawks and applying war paint to each other's faces right before they're set to parachute into Normandy. The idea for that pre-battle ritual came from Jake McNeese, part Choctaw Indian and the section sergeant of the Army's notorious Filthy 13 Demolition Unit, who had already proved himself a highly unorthodox leader long before the countdown to D-Day. Today on the show, Richard Kilblaine shares the story of Jake McNeese and the Filthy 13 with us. Richard is the author of two books about the unit, The Filthy 13 and Warpaint, and is himself a veteran of the Army Special Forces who served at every level in the military, from private soldier to company commander, and ended his career as the command historian for the U.S. Army Transportation Corps. Richard describes how you could already see the kind of hell-raising but effective leader McNeese would become during his youth in Oklahoma, and why McNeese chose to become a paratrooper. Richard then talks about all the trouble McNeese got into during boot camp, how he ended up leading a section of fellow renegades, and why his superior officers kept him around despite his pattern of engaging in deliberate disobedience. Richard then explains what was going on with the Filthy 13's pre-Normandy invasion Mohawks and war paint and what McNeese and his men did on D-Day and during the rest of the war. Richard explains why it was that McNeese got promoted despite never changing his rebellious ways, and we end our conversation with his surprising transformation after the war. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash filthy13. Richard Kilblaine, welcome to the show. Okay, thanks for having me on. So you've written a few books about a World War II, call it a squad, part of the 101, uh, they called the Filthy 13. They became to be known as that. For big picture, we're going to get into the detail of the story because it's really remarkable. Who were the Filthy 13? Like, What was their objective and mission during World War II? And then how did you discover the story of the, these guys? Well... The Filthy 13 was actually a demolition section. There was three demolition sections in the demolition platoon of the regimental headquarters company of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, which the Band of Brothers was Easy Company 506, inside the 101st Airborne Division. And Jake McNeese was appointed as the section sergeant, okay, and a section included two six-man squads. And uh, so that's 13 guys. And their mission, their primary mission is anything that has to do with blowing stuff up. Okay. That would be like a bridge mission or whatever. But in the event that they don't have a demolition mission, they were pretty much security around the regimental headquarters, Colonel Zink's headquarters. Okay. And so there were two bridge missions during uh, World War II that the the 506 had responsibility for. The first one was at the bridge at Ravans over the Dove Canal, just outside. It cuts off the, uh, any retreat or attack from Carrington. And the other one was the market garden. And, and how, how I came to uh, know about these guys. Well, actually I first heard about the filthy 13 while I was in special forces in the army. And, you know, it was a friend that told me about it and I just plugged it in the back of my mind until, you know, I got out of the army and I moved back home to Ponca City, Oklahoma. And lo and behold, the leader of that unit lived in my hometown. So I got to know him. All right. And uh, he was just a prolific storyteller. All right, so let's talk about Jake because he's like the main character of this first book. He became known as McNasty. 
and during his time with the Filthy 13. Let's talk about before he joined up and volunteered as a paratrooper. What was he like as a kid? I mean, did you see glimpses of the the man who would become known as McNasty in a teenage Jake McNeese? Yeah. Okay. The teenage years is, is where I would say I started. Before that, his parents were sharecroppers and actually successful share. We tend to think of sharecroppers as poor. No, his father was doing very well, had bought a house when the depression hit. And then, of course, they lost everything and the kids had to go to work. So Jake had to grow up fast and young. All right. So all the kids worked until they pretty much graduated from high school. He had two older brothers, I think, went into college. So Jake, when he was in, Jake was a superb athlete. If When you, you look at the book War Paint, I've got pictures of him stripped down to just the shorts going through the obstacle course. The guy is solid muscle. And when I saw his, I read his discharge. He weighed 175 pounds, and I think he stood 5'7". He's solid muscle. There's no fat on that guy. He's tough. So, but a tremendous athlete, both wrestling and football. And I guess he had played a little bit of football. He'd gotten to the ninth grade, and he's, he's going to drop out of school so he can work full-time to support the family. And Oklahoma, uh, back then, and there's a few places now, High school football is semi-pro, okay? And Ponca City and its rival town, Blackwell, both in the same county, they had pretty much professional football team because they, the coaches went out to these smaller towns and recruited athletes, either offering the athlete a job or offering their parents a job. And, and see, I say Blackwell and Ponca City because Blackwell had a uh, – I think a steel refinery and, and a steel mill in Ponca City had Continental Oil Company. And so the coach said, look, we'll get you a job with the fire department. Said, you play full time and then you'll work at the fire department. Well, he pretty much lived there. And when he joined the fire department, it's like the majority of that, the fire department were high school football players. So anyway, very responsible. And but tough, he a fighter, a serious scrapper. But when I got to know people, like he was admired, though. I think they they elected him as the high school, his senior class president. He went to work, he went to school wearing like uh, what you call coveralls or like the bib coveralls. And uh, so everybody else started wearing them. He you know, aside from his drinking and fighting and fooling around with loose women, he was admired because, you know, because when they got back from the war and he gives that up and he becomes a born again Christian, a lot of people said he changed. And from everything I was hearing, I said, no, there was no change. I said, once you strip those three vices from him, you got down to the real Jake McNeese. He's really a good guy. He did the fights he got in with bullies, with people who were starting fights with him, but he would defend other people. But the story that when I, the narration, actually my narration, which leads into Jake's story, begins with a football game in which it's, they're playing for blood. It, it Blackwell had beat him the last time. 
So this is a rivalry game, kind of like Army and Navy. There's there's zero score. And Jake is a problem solver. And I love that story. Every, everybody from who was in high school remembers that one play. And Jake is because he's the team captain, but he's a lineman. And he's just short. Remember, 5'7". He, at that time, he probably wasn't weighing 175 pounds. But the quarterback was, I think, a sophomore. He didn't have a lot of experience. So Jake would call the plays, and then the quarterback would run them. And so Jake says, let's do a quarterback sneak. And and, and the quartermaster's like, quarterback, his question is logic, because the guy he's going up against is twice his size. And Jake says, no, just trust me. Just trust me. He said, you just call off the numbers. I'll hike the ball when I'm ready. And what he does, he chews tobacco. So he's he's like saying stuff to get this guy's attention. And then he spit tobacco in his eye, blinded him, drives into his chest, drives him back into the end zone, opens a hole, the, the quarterback runs through. And then, of course, the guy's wiping, the defensive player's wiping tobacco juice from his eyes and claiming foul. Jake had to swallow that tobacco <laughs> in order to cover up the evidence. Well, everybody knew he chewed, knew it was true, but they had no evidence. And it was someone else who was there. It was actually Truman Smith who goes, yeah, I remember seeing Jake. Cause he, I guess he was a freshman or whatever that year. He goes, I remember seeing Jake puking his guts out in the shower after the game. But that's a kind of guy that the first sergeant and the company command, the original company commander, Hank Hanna, that's what they saw. They saw a guy who, aside from all this other stuff, he is going to get the job done. So does that answer your question? No, yes. Yeah, you already see a natural leader, uh, someone who will flit around the edges of the rules to get a job done, Absolutely. to be successful. So that was high school. What? How did he end up joining the paratroopers? Like, what was going on there? Why did he decide to volunteer? Well, as the as it, as his story t- pick is his version, the story picks up because he was a fireman. He had total exemption from the army, policeman, fireman. You know, mission essential. Well, he's a fighter, and he just can't stay out of this fight. So he decides to enlist. And why he went into the airborne is because what little he knew about the paratroopers is one, he's going to be with others like him. Okay. And he had properly, he understood the problem of combat. And that is when you're kicking in a door, you're, you're getting up and moving. Is everybody else going to be following you? Are you going to be the only guy running across that open ground? And he wanted, men he wanted to fight with men who he could trust were going to follow him we're going to be side by side with him and the other thing is he knew that probably some of the heaviest casualties are actually taken on the front lines all right and it a lot of it is because of who's on your left and the right he said by jumping in behind enemy lines he had no problem finding the enemy they were going to be all around him okay he just had to find some of his his battle buddies in order to, and that's a modern term, in order to uh, help kill those Germans. So that's that's why he enlisted. He didn't have to enlist. Uh, he volunteered and he wanted to go into the airborne because he knew they would be a, a higher class of fighters 
And he liked the idea of jumping, just jumping in behind the enemy where everywhere you looked was, was a target rich environment. And he also said, I thought this was interesting. He said, I, he says, if I was going to get killed, I want to be able, this is like, I, I want to be able to look the guy in the eyeball while he's killing me. And, and he said, I, I could get that in the paratroopers. Cause I'll be right. I'll jump right into the, into the enemy. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, so he, he signs up with the paratroopers and he gets sent off to boot camp. What was the experience in boot camp like? And did you start seeing the formation? Is this where you started seeing the formation of the Filthy 13? Yes. All right. Boot camp wasn't like uh, boot camp today, where you go through a collective training and you come out and you get individual assignments. That was actually, that is a descendant of the replacement tr- basic training at the end of World War II, really from 41 to about 43, you went through boot camp in your unit, okay? So he ends up in the 506th, and their boot camp was at uh, Toccoa, Georgia. And Colonel Zink, he knew what these men were going to have to face in combat. And he created an intense weeding out process. And the the normal attrition rate for any school in the Army is about 30%. It doesn't matter how hard or easy it is. If it's a really hard school like Ranger School or Special Forces School, well, you you got people who are that quality signing up for it. An easy school, easy, people who are that quality sign up for it. Well, uh, there's speculation that the, uh, the 506 had lost twice as many people as, as passed through it. High weed out. I think that Colonel Zink's weeding out process, what he was left with, were not just physically fit, but mentally tough men. All right, so boot camp is really rigorous, and Jake, he excels at the physical aspect of it, the operational stuff, but he really doesn't like the traditional military discipline aspect of it, like the saluting and standing in formation. And something we haven't mentioned yet is that Jake is part Choctaw Indian, and he tries to use that to get out of standing in formation because he says uh, saluting the flag is against his religion because he's a nature worshiper. And he also gets up into other kinds of pranks and trouble while he's in boot camp. Uh, can you tell us some more about that? So the shenanigans. And he's always, he's just funny. You know, he's, there was one time they were rigging, oh, they were blowing stumps. That's what they're clearing. They're clearing these stumps out of the swamp. Well, the swamp was full of cottonmouths. And so they rigged, they rigged some of the explosives. They said, quick, everybody, because he's just, it just comes to him like, let's do this. And everybody follows. So they go and hide. They set up an ambush. So here's these guys marching down the road with the swamp on both sides and they blow it. And as I think Agnew told the story best, he said they were showered with mud and cottonmouth snakes. And these guys were pissed, but they couldn't find him. Okay. He stole a train. Okay. You know, they had taught him that once you jump behind enemy lines, you know, here's how to, here's how to blow track. You know, demolitions when you blow track. I was I was cross trained as a demolitionsman in my first special forces assignment, and they taught me. He says, "Yeah, where the joint is, you blow that because now you got to player two pieces of track, not one." But they also taught him how to you know disable or operate locomotives because you're behind the enemy lines. 
So he goes downtown and, you know, they take the deuce and a half into town and he overstays time. This is the, the truck back. So he's going to be written up. And so he, he's at this railroad station. He's looking for a train. He sees a tender, which is a small locomotive. And they just move stuff around. He's waiting for the operators to go get something to eat when they do, because <laughs> the boiler's still running. He goes in there and takes that thing and takes off. Now, he says, in all fairness, you know, for to prevent an accident, he puts out these toe poppers or whatever, torpedoes or whatever out there. So if a train's coming, it will pop off knowing that there's another locomotive on the track. Well, of course, he's stolen a locomotive and there's a big investigation on that and all the guys cover for him. So they're in lockdown and they got like a couple of weeks before I guess they're shipping out and they all have demolitions. They start blowing stuff up. Okay. I think another story, let me think, you know, there's the, he was just getting fight. Oh, where they say the critics were going, yeah, he should have been kicked out. Well, it came close. And that was, if you remember the story about him refusing to stand formation, claiming it was against his religion, which he made up. And finally, Hank Hanna, whose company commander becomes a great, a very successful lawyer after the war. Basically, Hank Hanna tells him, you need to do, you know, I'm giving you a direct order. And Jake's like, okay. The funny part is he said, I only stood one formation. Then I got thrown <laughs> He gets in a fight and he's now in the stockade for another two weeks. And then they go through jump school. So it's like, yeah, he only stood that one formation. Well, him and Shorty Milan, both of them were heavy drinkers. So they go into an off limits area to get drunk and they come out. And Jake, I went to the 506 reunions mainly to find out if Jake was making this up. And what I found is everybody was telling better stories. Well, I love getting the other stories on this. Well, anyway, most people agreed Jake was the toughest guy. In it. The only guy that would disagree with Eddie Shamus, who was, I really believe, was jealous of Jake. Okay. So Jake and Shorty are getting drunk and they come out and they're in off limits area and the MPs go to arrest him. And Shorty takes a swing at one of the MPs and he falls over and the MPs pull their billy bats out, decide to go to work on him. And Jake grabs the bat and says, look, he's drunk. He has no harm. And they, you know, Jake can't stand bullies. So like, leave us alone. We're going to beat this guy. So Jake takes, disarms him, takes their billy bats away from him, beats him into the ground. And he's drunk. And then he goes, well, now these guys have 45s. They're pissed off. I can't allow them to have loaded 45s. So he takes their 45s and empties the round. Well, if you're drunk, how do you empty a 45? You just start shooting out street lights. Funny story to that is, is I was at that reunion and, and Jake would always freak begin him and Martha would have breakfast in the same McDonald's. And it was this local who came by and it would say, and they knew it was the 506 reunion and people would come up and see these old guys and sit down and talk with him. One guy sitting there, he's going, yeah, you guys were wild and rowdy. I remember one night, because he was a kid, and he said, one night, this drunken Indian just shot up all these street lights. <laughs> and Martha's, Jake's, Jake's sitting there quiet. Martha's laughing and going, pointing to Jake, said, that's the drunken Indian. So anyway, Hank Hanna comes in and he goes, look, Jake, Colonel Zink wants to break the 100-mile uh, road march that was the record that was set by the Japanese. He said, we know you could do it. He said, I'm afraid if I 
you know, because he was over the, you know, the company commander goes in and bails your soldiers out. I've had to do it. Okay. As a platoon leader. And so he goes, yeah, but I'm afraid that you're just going to get more trouble and I need you for that road march. So is it okay if I just leave you in a stockade? And he goes, yeah, you know, Jake was just so reasonable. He goes, yeah, that makes sense. Sure. I'll stay here. And the first, when I went to the first regimental headquarters company reunion, that was the story everybody was telling about is they're running up and down three miles up, three miles down, you know, Mount Curry. And the stockade was at the base of the hill. And every time they're running by Jake and Shorty Mylon are behind the, behind the wire waving at him like, and then when they were coming back, cause Hannah was a fast runner and they go, heat, heat, heat. Which is a which is a term like if you got a horse race and you, it's neck and neck, they go heat 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 because they're trying to get the other guys to beat Hannah. But the, I heard in, in when I interviewed the guys that there was one point that they came close to. This is where Colonel Zink was said we got to get rid of this guy. And now the first sergeant was Top Kick Miller was not alive, but he was just a true judge of character. But it turned out it was both Hank Hanna and Miller who went to bat and said, no, sir, we're not going to a parade field. We're going into war and we're going to need this guy. All right. So Jake is something of a hellraiser, and he ends up leading a section of guys who are also kind of troublemakers. Uh, how did that happen? So what they did is anybody who was having trouble in the other section, they would give to Jake. You know, before they kicked him out, they'd give him to Jake. Well, you know, there are some guys that, I mean, a lot of your troublemakers are really, really smart. The biggest problem they have is with stupid leadership. So Jake's not asking him to do anything that doesn't make sense. And, and so a lot of them fit in. And so what they're doing is they're surrounding Jake with guys just like himself. And they're, they're going to follow his every lead. And so what the filthy 13 is Jake McNeese and 12 accomplices. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right. So after boot camp, Jake and his unit get shipped off to England. And while they're there, they're getting ready for D-Day. This is when they actually get their nickname, the filthy 13. And there's lots of legends how they got that nickname. One of them is that they promised each other that they wouldn't bathe until they were dropped into France and they killed some, some Germans. But the real story is different. How did they actually get their nickname, the Filthy 13? They lived in Nisei Hunts, which is kind of like Quonset Huts on uh, Little Cut Manor. And it was a section, 13 guys, actually it was 14 guys, because they put the platoon sergeant in there thinking it would clean these guys up, which it didn't. All right. And they were refusing to, they, they got a small water ration. And they only got a shower, an actual shower on Saturday. They, they trained till Saturday afternoon and lunchtime. And they got a small water ration, which were supposed to do a sponge bath. But they did. They also getting British rations, which were terrible. Spam, living off of spam. That, that's as bad as living off MREs. And so they started poaching <laughs> deer, rabbits, trout they there was a fish hatchery there so they're as they say they were poaching the king's deer well they had to use their water to clean and cook it so they weren't bathing and that's how these guys got filthy 
And that's where they got the nickname, the Filthy 13. There's a probably saw the photo of these guys with that wooden shingle that they wrote the Filthy 13 on it. All right. So filthy because they're filthy, like literally physically filthy. They were physically filthy. filthy. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing the Filthy 13 are famous for or best known for uh, also happened in England right before D-Day. They're getting ready to get on the plane to drop into Normandy. And Jake gets inspired by his Choctaw heritage and he, ins- he shaves his hair into a mohawk and then he puts some war paint on his face. And then the rest of the Filthy 13 do the same thing. What's the story there? What happened there? They had just painted the black and white invasion stripes on the plane. It was still wet. And Jake went over and wiped the paint off with his fingers and started painting his face. It, he just does stuff on the spur of the moment. He shaves his head and he puts on war paint. Guys go, Jake, why are you doing that? And, and everybody knew he was part Indian. They didn't know it was, he was Choctaw. Well, so what he says, well, you know, and. And in, uh, in the Indian culture, we take each other's scalps, okay? So that's why the scalp block. And they go like, well, why the war paint? And he said, camouflage, camouflage, okay? That's the guys is like, yeah, we'll do it. The only one that didn't that we know of was Jack Warmer because he came out of the Ranger Battalion, the 29th Ranger Battalion. And so he had a different mentality towards discipline than, than Jake did. And then we've got a picture of Trigger Gan who was attached to him for the jump. But there were two engineer NCOs, a corporal and a sergeant, who were attached to him. And all they jumped in with it too. Hey, shave my head, paint my face. And the only image we have of Jake with the war paint on is him painting Sergeant Moreno's uh, face, who is the uh, engineer sergeant. But yeah, these guys would just like follow him on a whim like that. And, and that's the filthy thirteen. All right, so the Filthy 13, they get ready for battle in a way that really fits their, their renegade attitude. And then they get dropped into Normandy as part of the D-Day invasion. What happens to Jake and the Filthy 13 on D-Day? As I mentioned, the Filthy 13 was the first demolition section of the demolition platoon. The only battalion that had a demolition mission on D-Day was the 3rd Battalion, 1st Demolition section trains with the first battalion. The third section trains with the third battalion. To validate Jake's, you know, usefulness, Colonel Zink came to Jake or, or had Jake come to him and ask him if he would do, would take on that mission to do the bridges at Provence. Okay. And I want to point this out in the time we have is that those guys went out the plane early and I just got my friend that found those two letters that I shared with you also sent me the troop carrier after action report. And it identified what planes dropped their loads early or whatever. And for the third battalion mission, it mentions two planes. I think it said 17 miles from their drop zone, but they were scattered because they were not they hadn't slowed down at jump speed. They were still at regular speed. And I've in interviewing these guys and they described like what town they were near. They were spread out over eight miles and Jake was eight miles from his objective. And what you find is most of these guys that on D-Day, the airborne, wherever they landed that night, they stayed there. If they fought, they fought there. They regrouped in the daylight. And you look at the band of brothers. They pretty much fought where they were at, and it's the next day they got together and they went and attacked a mission. Jake was bound and determined 
He's by himself that he is going to get to that bridge and accomplish his mission. Now, he follows the path of the plane and he manages to pick everybody that went out before him was either killed, wounded or captured, except Trigger Gant. But he's managed to pick up most of the guys behind him that went out behind him, except for Jack Walmer and plus other guys. And remember, you know, they've lost most because he's lost most of the guys. He's lost most of the demolitions. So every time they bump into a paratrooper, everybody had demo. So like, give us our demo. So by the time he gets got to his bridge, he had 13 guys and more than enough demolition to accomplish the mission. Now, I mentioned Jack Warmer. See, and I brought this up in Warpaint that Jake's discipline was different from others. Everybody expects someone to obey orders. Jake was in, in all the antics he was doing. He was deliberately training his men to disobey orders, but he focused on the mission. And he, he promoted Joe Aliskowicz, who was 17 years old when he joined the army. He was one of the youngest guys in the unit. And he, he made him one of the squad leaders. And I said, Jake, why'd you do that? He said, because I knew if anything happened to me, which he meant get killed, that Joe would accomplish the mission. And it hit me at that time. Jake was mission focused, which is exactly how special forces is. Once you accept a mission, you don't fail them. You don't come back. You don't fail the mission. Okay. I understood that. And Jack Warmer came out of the Ranger Battalion. He was trained by the British commandos. And the discipline they had is you obey the order because your mission can change. Because, for example, you're going in to attack one target, but that target is so heavily fortified that it's suicidal to do it. You, you got to be flexible and pick another mission. So you have to obey the, the orders of your officers. You know, like Jake ends up walking through the 501st area sector and runs into Colonel Johnson. And Johnson says, your mission's changed. You now belong to me. I want you on perimeter security. And he ignores him and keeps going to his bridge. Jack Warmer runs into the 501st. First officer says, hey, you're now part of us. And he obeys. And uh, Steve DeVito, who wrote Jack Warmer's story, you know, he he pretty much subscribed with Jack Warmer's idea of discipline and, and was very critical of Jake. And I said, let me put it this way. Had Jake and all those other guys had the same attitude of discipline, obey your, the orders of the officers above you, none of, none of the demolition men would have reached the bridge. That's why he was the way he was. All right. So that was D-Day. And so this is, you know, they, they made that jump with the yeah. Mohawks, the war paint. Jake, again, taking the initiative to make sure the job gets done, even disobeyed orders to do that. What happened after D-Day? Like, when did they wrap things up there and where did they, where did the, the army send them next? Well, after they recovered from the bridges, they, they pretty much were security around. Oh, well, no, they had to take Carrington. So the whole 506 regiment had to take Carrington. He was part of that attack. But they were pretty much security for the regimental headquarters. So they weren't like the band of brothers actually attacking in there. They, they did get engaged. But after that, they pretty much performed security patrols, things like that, until they went back to England. And then they did the market garden jump. And as I mentioned, the demolition platoon had three bridge missions. So each one of the sections was assigned a bridge. Now, an interesting story of that is the bombing of the bridges. If you watch 
the movie Band of Brothers and when they're out there on this flank attack on this one town, I think Moose or whatever his name is gets captured and recovered. The scene ends with them looking at dark and they see this bombing of Eindhoven. Well, that's the bombing of the bridges. And Jake's lieutenant, you know, when Jake saw this Mr. Smith fly over and drop flares, Jake recognized what was going to happen. He was illuminating the bridges for a bombing run. And Jake told all his guys to get in the bunkers. The lieutenant's telling him, no, you got to stay out here and defend the bridges. And, and there was a tank, a German tank off in the distance. Jake said, no one's going to be attacking this bridges while the Germans are bombing it. Trust me. And he goes, any of you guys who don't want to get killed, you know, because he didn't tell them they'll do it. It's like, anyone don't want to get killed, get in the bunker. Well, they all got in the bunker. Now, the other two sections, when you get it in, you get the story in uh, War Paint, they did as they were trained. They stayed out. And the counter to strafing or bombing is you fire in the hair. So these guys have got M1 Grands, Thompson submachine guns, and they're just throwing bullets up that don't do anything. And several of them got us. Uh, there was so many of them that got killed and wounded by the bombing. Both NCOs were killed. Many of the uh, soldiers were seriously injured that what was left of that platoon was rolled up under Jake. I mean, Jake had the only section that was left intact. And that is when he goes from being section sergeant, to the platoon sergeant. Now he's up from going from buck sergeant. His discharge, he was a staff sergeant. That was a platoon sergeant's rank, okay? And then Warmer will replace Jake as a section sergeant. All right, that tells you like, okay, he disobeyed the order of the officer, but that was the right thing to do. He saved his section and what's left of the others probably made another squad. And it, and they actually sent the officers away. They distributed the officers throughout the rest of the battalion or regiment and removed the platoon sergeant, gave him other duties. Basically, they're going, Jake's the guy who's going to keep everybody alive. And that's something else. When I met Ragsman Cone, Robert Cone, you know, he, he was captured in Normandy and spent the war as a POW. And it wasn't until somebody radio showed tracked him down. Uh, or his son tracked him down. Anyway, they, he goes to a reunion and starts selling. And when I talked to him about joining the Filthy 13, he said, Jake's the only one he remembered. But he goes, I knew that guy was going to live. You know, there, when, when you talk to these guys, these World War II vets, there's always like one guy in the company that you know he's going to make it through. And he's blessed with common sense, but usually gets them busted. Because they're smarter than most of their leaders and they're tough as hell. And that was Jake. And and Bob Cohn said, you know, when I looked at Jake, I'm like, that guy's going to win the Medal of Honor. Okay. That's the kind of person Jake was. Okay. So after Operation Market Garden, Jake joined a group called the Pathfinders. And these guys, they would jump in ahead of the main airborne uh, body to set up things like beacons to guide the rest of the planes in that were dropping off the main airborne body. Half of the Filthy 13 joined him on that, and they get dropped into the Battle of the Bulge. And then Jake, ultimately, he ended up with four combat jumps, which is, that's really rare for a paratrooper. After, and then the war ended. After that, what happened to Jake? What, did he, what happened to Jake after the war? Well, by the time they uh, get to occupation in uh, Zellum Z, Switzerland, 
they get discharged on points and uh, get, they go home, not discharged, they go home on points. And Topkick Miller, you know, career soldier, stuff that wounded in Normandy, he had a lot of points, so they sent him home. And the company commander, who's Gene Brown at that time, picks Jake to be the acting first sergeant. So here's this guy who they won't, Jay Brown is a funny story in the book about when, when they're in, when they're in uh, New York port of embarkation and uh, Jake is still a private, not even private first class. And they tell him, you got to promote this guy. And he says, uh, you know, Jake was already AWOL downtown drinking. And, and Gene Brown says, they can send me to Leavenworth, the prison, before I ever promote this guy to private. Gene Brown ended up promoting this guy all the way to first sergeant. Okay, acting first sergeant. His discharge listed him as staff sergeant, which was the rank of platoon sergeant. After the war, he travels around, raises hell and stuff like that till he moves back to Ponca City, falls in love with a good Hispanic woman, and uh, she knows his troubled background. And Jake says, Look, he said, my problem is drinking. And if I'm, I, he said, I don't get in fights when I'm not drinking. And so he says, I give that up. I give it all. Well, so here's Jake. He's given up drinking a lay preacher. Now, I, uh, I did World War II living history. And, uh, and uh, one of the guys in my unit had just read the book. And he says, is it true? This Hellraiser became a lay preacher? I said, yeah, it was. And so I told Jake that. And he says, Jake had a, had a comeback. He, his real calling should have been a stand-up comic. He goes, yeah. He said, next time you're asked that, that question, he said, tell him this. I spent the first 35 years of my life sowing wild oats and the rest of my life praying for a crop failure. It's classic Jake. Yeah. Yeah, it was. That's, that summed up his life right there. So what do you hope people walk away with thinking after they, they finish your books about the Filthy 13 and Jake McNeese? Well, several things. First of all, Take it as a entertaining story, okay? Now, if you're caught up in discipline and stuff, read between the lines. Why do they not kick this guy out? Why do they keep promoting him? Why is he made the first sergeant of the Pathfinders? Why is he made acting first sergeant of regimental headquarters company? Because he's a leader. The only thing he had problem was, was saluting and standing formations. In his mind, he's looking like, if this doesn't contribute to my training for the war, it doesn't make sense. But he also is going to push the limit. And he did. And he got away with it because they were trying to rationalize with him. All right. For all those people said, I'd have kicked him out. Well, you'd have lost the war too. Okay. I was a company commander. I'd have had a hard time. I'd, you know, as much as like Jake, <laughs> I'd have had a hard time protecting that guy. We would have got along, he, he, you know, and I'm, I'm, he would have probably obeyed what I told him to do anyway, because I, I'd have been rational with him like Hank Hanna, but he would have definitely fitted as a team sergeant in special forces because there was guys like Jake that I knew. But so read between the lines and look at the leadership, the mission focus this guy had. And that I would say that's that's the and then, of course, at the end. Yeah, the guy, the guy. Look, there were two Jakes <laughs> when I went to his. His funeral, which was held in the church that that he pretty much, you know, if they didn't have a preacher, he would be preaching in and everybody knew he he, he retired as a uh, all those guys. When I did the war paint and I followed up on one, they lived the American dream 
uh, post-World War II, which is get married, uh, buy a home and get a job with the big company and retire 30, 35 years. And he retired like 35 years as a postal worker. Okay. And the people who were in his church had no idea about the other Jake McNeese until the book came out. And to sit there and hear the stories told, you know, the shock, like we didn't know about this guy. You know, my brother went to high school with Hugh McNeese, his son. And he's like, he's reading the book. He said, uh, I'd never figured this out because his, you know, Hugh was a good church going guy. I mean, he carried a Bible around in high school, dressed well. He's like, you wouldn't believe this troublemaker was their father. Yeah. Jake straightened him out. Well, Richard, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, Amazon. I've got a lot of books. You can buy them on Amazon. My uh, next book's coming out, which is, it's about the Rough Riders, mostly from Oklahoma. And it is now listed on Amazon. I like the cover. Title is, They Were the Rough Riders, but it's coming out in January. I think both The Filthy 13 is now in paperback, is small print. The hardbacks are hard to get. And I think War Paint is still for sale on Amazon. But I have, uh, as I retired as the Army Transportation Corps historian, and I did a lot of research on gun trucks, both Vietnam and Iraq. And I have uh, several books on, on those. And with the, with the Convoy Ambush Case Studies, Volume 1, Vietnam and Korea, I was interviewing guys 30 to 40 years after the fact. And so it's a lot thinner than Volume 2, which is Iraq and Afghanistan. My style of writing there was to put you in the vehicles, to get you into the kill zone. Okay. I do a much better job on the Iraq volume because, I mean, I was interviewing guys day because I went down range. I rode on convoys. I was interviewing guys days and weeks after the ambush. At most, maybe a year after the ambush, but they uh, they they give you a feel about both the good, you know how how soldiers react under fire, good and bad, heroes and cowards, and those are online. You can buy them, but they're online, and uh, you go to the Army Transportation Corps and web page, click history, click, uh, or you just type in my name in Convoy Case Study, and you click public history, and then there's a publications list, and it has all those books, and you could you can read them online. Well, Richard Kilblain, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. All right. Hey, thanks for having me on. My guest today was Richard Kilblain. He's the author of the book, The Filthy 13 and War Paint, The Filthy 13. They're both available on amazon.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash filthy13, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to not only listen to the A1 podcast, but put what you've heard into action.